Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Ronald Federici. This episode is the second of a two-part series with Dr. Federici. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd encourage you to check it out on our iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. Dr. Ronald Federici is regarded as the country's expert in developmental neuropsychology for children from adoption trauma backgrounds. He has written books and hundreds of publications regarding the damaging effects of childhood maltreatment, ranging from developmental trauma disorder, FASD and drug exposure affecting attachment in children, traumatic autism, and reconstructive therapy. Dr. Federici is CEO of Care for Children International, which offers comprehensive services for children and families in the USA and abroad, specializing in complex cases that have been unresponsive to past interventions. Dr. Federici is the father of nine children, eight of which were adopted from very traumatic backgrounds who have grown into very productive adults. Dr. Federici also teaches and lectures internationally. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So um, I want to shift here um, into you know some of what you think are essential components of treatment. But first, just to kind of recap here. So we're talking about one more comprehensive evaluation. From the start, from the start. Yes, that, that we really have to, we just can't say, oh, it's a rad child. You right, know, right. We, we have to understand a lot of these other things. Um, we have to understand that all adopted children aren't the same. An internationally adopted child is going to have very different experiences than a child adopted out of foster care or maybe even domestically adopted, even in a better situation than that. Like we have to recognize that these are major differences. And you know, Karen, if I may interrupt, a lot of people and a lot of professionals are told them, well, rad is rad is rad and PTSD is the same. I said, not really. You know, it is important to talk about level of severity, but also the level of chronicity and I call it ritualistic abuse because our foster care kids, and I'm not negating that, our domestic, somewhere we hope and pray it, we stop it. That's our job. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't always work. We have a flawed domestic system too. It, we try our best. But internationally, it goes on even in care, in social care. And so people have to understand just because they're adopting the kid, did and they they said well the orphanage was pretty clean that doesn't mean anything it's the social environment because they look at these kids as non-productive citizens as opposed to traumatized kids because they started with some defect or some problem or whatever and they were dumped and so it's very important for people adopting internationally from wherever to understand except where it's getting betterment to understand that especially ukraine be ready for a multi-layered traumatized kid medically biologically psychologically or domestically we have access but we do have to start on cultural evaluations from other countries but baseline neuropsychological developmental and trauma evaluations to know what they're thinking reasoning not all about it you know i'm not even sure i understand what an attachment evaluation is i think we have to look at what their brain capacity is what their thinking capacity is and what their experience is. What do they know? And what I find out if you do that early, a lot of them don't know anything. And I tell parents, this is like an addiction. 
we have to detox them. And one of my articles I wrote, detoxification from institutional care. You can take the kid out of the orphanage, but you can't take the orphanage out of the kid. Mm-hmm. It takes time mm-hmm. and steps, mm-hmm. not just loving them. Love, the first chapter of my first book was love ain't is not enough. Mm-hmm. And so evaluation really then sets the stage for being a good teacher and trainer for a kid who doesn't understand what to do in a new home. Good. And, um, and one last thing before we switch gears to, to treatment um, is... Um, you alluded to this, but I want to bring attention to it specifically, medical problems. I mean, that's what Dr. Arnson is, was really starting to look at yep. it as a specialty is that these children can come with diseases and other things that our doctors don't even know to look for, don't know to test for. No, nope, you're right. And, you know, if I might bring up personal experience with, one, with my boys from Romania who were in the hospital for two years, medical hospital, for almost two years after adoption because their legs were broken, beaten, hemophilia, hepatitis C. They were so, they weighed 30 pounds and they were 10 and 12. So wow. they were so sickly and they went to the best hospitals here in Washington area. And my buddies are great people. It took a doctor who worked in Africa to figure out the type of intestinal parasites they had that we don't even know in America that prevented them from eating, growing, growth, but they go up to the brain and can cause what they call encephalopathies or brain viruses and infections, which they had. And Jane wow. Aronson knows all about this. She's an infectious yeah. disease expert, and Jane knows more than anybody. And she's my dear colleague and in, in same in Haiti. So, and also malnutrition. We took lab samples of food back to New York, her lab, and said, my God, this stuff has botulism in it. These kids are eating it. Gosh. So their wow. liver is damaged, so they don't metabolize medications well, which are put on. Their stomachs are a mess. Their digestive tract and peeing and, and, and soiling is bad. But more than that, the infectious process of, um, like, you know, you can have everything from encephalitis, uh, meningitis that's uh, been treated poorly, or tick bites. And we know that Lyme's disease can affect the brain and the body. There's so many things in these remote places, especially Africa and Southeast Asia, and are definitely in Eastern Bloc, that are never addressed for years. It's amazing for years. And, wow. and, and, and that's why doctors who are outstanding, like Jane Aronson in infectious disease, Dana Johnson, out world famous, you know, uh, Charlie Zena, you know, from a psychological point of view, you know, I do the neuropsych stuff. Gary Feldman in California, who has studied the disorders of sleep in these kids, because he says they all have sleep disorders because trauma wiped out their sleep cycles. People don't even look at that. And, you know, so adoption medicine is really a very critical area to go to people who know this stuff. Like mm-hmm. Ira, Ira does, right. 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 So, good. Well, I just wanted to, you know, make clear um, statement about the medical, like, aside from all the psychological. Oh, it's and then a huge issue. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, think of it this way. Our own kids, when, my, uh, when our bio kid, number nine, when he feels crappy with a stomach infection, He's down for the count. If he, they don't ever treat ear infections over there. When he has ear infections, he has a headache. They don't treat any of that stuff. Imagine years of no treatment for simple stuff that we deal with every day in foster care. Right, 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 right. Yes, I think, you know, so I think the opening question would just be so, oh my, we've talked about so many things and so many layers and, and, and um, 
what do you do about it? Like, what are you telling people to do about it? Well, you know, that, that's the best thing. So when I like to work with people for a couple, three days, not just a one snapshot in time, first of all, get a baseline evaluation, a neuropsych, cognitive, remember, the brain drives the behavior. So many people say it's just behavior. No, 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 no. The brain drives the behavior. Charlie and all of us talk about it. the brain drives attachment, all the stuff like that. Reactive attachment disorder. At my population, I think if I've seen a pure case, it's maybe less than 3%. There's always comorbidities or other things with it. So what you do, starting over. You know, I have a four-pronged area that I think people need to look at on their timeline. We know the kid's timeline is screwed up. New timeline has to be reconstructed. Number one, get the baseline neuropsychological. Look at all the medical things that can be addressed and fixed so the kid feels better, which includes appetite, food, and especially sleep. Medical issues all must be addressed first. The second prong is the neuropsychological tying into the psychoeducational. What is their brain's capacity to learn in three critical domains? Language, visual perception, so they can see facial expressions, body language, and basically scan their world because their world's been locked away in a traumatic world. But language is so important in four areas. Language, listening, logic, can they make sense? And can they learn from what you're talking about? So many people talk and talk to a kid who has a terrible language disability. We have found 55 to 68, we've done this study 18 times of kids from traumatic backgrounds. 55 to 68% have language disabilities. That's enormous. Because and a the lot language, of the therapy we try to do is language-based. That's right. Because And the language centers are so sensitive, and they're, they're right next, literally, I'm making a hand, the language centers on the left side of the brain, and right around it is the limbic system or the emotional brain. That's why they interact importantly and poorly. If the language is bad, the emotional brain is going to be bad. So language, listening, logic makes sense, but learn. Can they those areas, so the four acronyms of language, and then visual perception. Can they not just see visually, but can they perceive facial expressions? And I have all kinds of tests for this because I look at this stuff. Facial expressions. A lot of kids say, why are you angry? You're smiling. Well, I'm not angry. Yes, you are. I can tell on your face. But, and they're smiling. They, they, if you don't have that experience as a little baby, how the hell are you going to know when somebody's really having a proper, and that gets into attachment and social relationships. The, the third area is that can they process, organize, and use executive functioning? Meaning can they take it in, garbage in, garbage out? Because so often they give garbage out. Yelling, screaming, kicking, spitting, fighting, yelling. And you know what? That means they're overloaded on the sensory input in, and they don't have an executive filter which is a brain issue, not a, just a psychological issue. So I look at those three areas of assessment of their brain, because that gets into, I don't even worry about education, Karen. I, I tell parents, forget education. The kid comes first, the medical, the neuropsychological. The third critical, uh, the four, third critical block is family. Is this family stronger than the disability? Because before you can start any therapy, the family has to be on board and understand the medical disabilities, uh, the neuropsychological disabilities, which also includes trauma. 
trauma. I'm going to get there in a minute, but that neuropsych really tell you a lot about their trauma of the brain and psychology. But the family has to be stronger than the disability. I call it encapsulation. They have to take charge of the disability, not an authoritarian or, or damaging or anything hurtful, because I don't believe in any of that kind of crazy stuff that was going on in that old day attachment holding therapy, you know, shake and bake the kid. We're not going to do that. But safety management, the parents have to understand that these kids, if they're not safe, and I look at not holding, but I look at safety time, uh, violence management is a critical part of family therapy that the parents have to be able to be nurturing and caring enough to take charge of the trauma that's going to exude. And the fourth box or component has to be what can this kid do on their own, which is usually as a starting point. I tell parents they're not capable of doing anything. They need box ones, two, and three. So many families and therapists go wrong when they say, well, he has to learn or she has to learn to self-control. She has to learn to not pee the bed. He has to learn not to yell and scream. I tell him, no, 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 no. They're coming from a traumatic background that all they know is trauma. And so their condition response is fight or flight. And I tell that you got to go back to box three. You have to be the parenting, reparenting agent to take over and teach them how to be a kid all over again. Not regressive stuff, but you teach. You got to teach social interactions, sensory. All of them don't know how to play. They don't know how to play. They don't know how to trust and interact. And if they play, they do it the autistic way. I want to do this. I want to do this. And what parents do incorrectly, and this is where I get yelled at a lot of times, like we joked about, I say, don't be buying them. You don't know how many home visits I went to. It looked like their room was Disney World. And, or they take them to Disney World. or take them to amusement. I said, no, no, no. You're blowing their hard drive. They don't need anything but people. People-centered family-centered, like Dan used, relationship-centered therapy. Mm -hmm. No video games. And they don't need to go to school. They don't need to go to Disney World. They don't need to play baseball. They need to stay at home and work on a new attachment, the, the formation of attachment. It's the only time I'm really using attachment, not disorder, but a new way of safe attachment in box three. Because box four on their own, they can't do it. They can't do it. So that's the starting point of their timeline at the top, I always draw on my big board. Here's their timeline. It started off screwed up and it continued. But the timeline that we want to reconstruct on the bottom is starting over. And in the middle is our workspace of bonding, attachment, sensory, play, all the things we do with our biological kids. Like our, my, I got my biological kid who's eight. All the things you do with him is what we got to teach him all over again. And, and that's where you start off on developing. Then you can converge their pathways. But so many people start on box four, Karen, and just want to work on just the kid. No, no, no. Medical, neuropsychological, brain, family, and then the kid. The kid can't do it on their own. I don't care who they are. I don't care if their evaluation said they're ADHD and their conduct disorder. They still need the family to take charge and reconstruct them. And that gets into a whole other areas. Maybe that's another seminar about... I have a whole course in teaching emotional intelligence, teaching self-control and self-regulation, teaching the language of human emotions. And maybe if we do this again, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm happy to all share it because I give everything away. I got a lot of good resource material that can be that therapists should use in abundance. It's all along the line of autism interventions because if you think about an autistic kid, they don't understand social behaviors. Their language is terrible. They're impulsive. 
they're dysregulated, and they're in another world. And so are our traumatized kids. So why would we not want to treat them like an autistic kid? It works great because you know what it does? It gives us specific, really hands-on material to work with instead of just talking, mm -hmm. especially if their language is bad. Right. And um, that, you know, I sometimes see therapists, um, they want to teach, you know, feeling words or play feeling games. And I say, like, this kid's brain is nowhere close to even being able exactly. to identify a feeling. Like, I mean, this is like, you got to go way back. Like, they had no one to interpret feelings back to them in early infancy. The, right, maternal, like, maternal attachment, right. You know, so thinking you're just going to do, like, teaching feelings, it's like you're trying to teach them a language that they don't, they don't even know. They already come to us thinking we're speaking Greek or hieroglyphics. They have no clue what the hell we're talking about because we have come from therapists and parents who are either ill-informed, not properly trained, or have been guided. And this is a little bit of my constructive uh, criticism to the therapy community. And you and I have had this open conversations, and you know how I am in lectures. You know, stop talking and teach them. They don't get it. You know, they don't get it. You're talking too much. And, you know, uh, I, just, I just finished up a case today here, and the family, you know, culturally they were Greek, and Greek people, like us Italians, we talk a lot, but Greeks are very intense. And this boy had no clue because the mother was an overtalker, and he was very traumatized, very traumatized. He, he was adopted, I think, at 13 or 14, and now he's 19. He still has no clue what the hell's going on because the mother and everybody's talking to him, and his receptive language percentile score was below the first percentile. I was the first one in years to tell him he has no language comprehension. Wow. You know, and, and, every, and then she argued with me. I said, ask him what you, he, you, you just said. He had no clue. And so, and I'm not making mockery of it. I'm just saying that a lot of times, you're right, therapists misinform people and start off on the outcome variables, on the symptoms of trying to teach something that doesn't exist up here or psychologically has been ripped away by trauma, neglect, isolationism, things like that, that Charlie talks about, Charlie Zena, in his book on infant maternal attachment, which is, you know, the Bible. Charlie, and he changed his tune after he went to Romania. He said, oh, Jesus, this is even worse than I thought. I knew that there was traumatic attachments and neglect. I've never realized that it was this level of severe that really does wipe out the hard drive. So, and Bessel talks about that too, Vanderbilt, you know, everybody. And, Dana Johnson, we all now know that therapy, therapists, I'm not negating the need for it, but it should be a teaching therapy. And going back, like you alluded to, which was absolutely correct, let's go back to sensory work, play, interactions, feeding, safety, so they know we're, good, we're the good guys in block three, as opposed to coming in block four that you're going to learn this, you're going to do this, you're going to behave this, you're going to fit in this family. Doesn't work that way. So I think, too, what you're saying is even when we say, oh, they have a process, they have a language processing disorder, or they have, you know, whatever, learning disability, like, we're missing, like, it's way bigger than that. Like, they're not, they don't know how to relate, they don't know how to interpret, they don't know how to think. It's almost like when we put those little labels on it, um, 
it's just not, it's just not thinking expansive enough, I guess. Well, no, that, that's correct. And also, too, they miss fundamental vocabulary, concepts, ideas. And also, when I back to the vision, they don't know how to read people. They don't know how to read their environment. That's why they often are terrible at school or big social groups, because that's just another orphanage. So they act up and act out around other people or act inappropriately because it's still, you know, it's their first schemata, you know, like Piaget talked about. Their first thought and first imprint was to be this way. And that's a hard one to wipe out because if you're going to take something away, you better replace it with a new level of learning. Like you use the word language. It is a whole different language. And when I set up a course of teaching emotional intelligence, I tell them it's not just learning English. It's learning the language of human emotions by seeing, thinking, verbiage, interactions, but most important, practice, play, practice, interactions, teaching methodical organization, but don't get into dictatorial or assuming that they just don't want to do it because they're acting up. Go back to block three, which is family as a safety net and be a good teacher and a mentor. Go back to block two and realize that they're not playing with the full deck and go back to block one. Something may have impacted the organism that they're still fighting, like whether it be brain damage, FAS, we know it's lifelong. And a lot of people say, well, they, I heard this the other day from a physician, and I was shocked. It was a psychiatrist. And they said, well, it's only mild FAS. They should be over it by now. I'm on the phone. I'm like, excuse oh. me? What was that again? They said, well, I don't see any facial features. I heard it was only mild exposure, so they should be passed and be able to compensate by now. I said, excuse me. It doesn't work that way. The brain cells just don't regenerate. Sir, you're a psychiatrist. You should be getting this one. And if you're giving that message, I would recommend another profession. Well, I didn't do well with that social relationship <laughs> myself. <laughs> but now you got yourself in trouble again. I got myself in trouble. But you know what? It was something that needed to be said because think of that advice to a parent. What are the parents going to say? He's right. The kid's doing it on purpose now. Right. So, you know, so that's a, that's a great lead into, you know, what I wanted to ask you as you're talking. Okay. So we know we used to think there's critical windows of development. If stuff doesn't happen, then too bad. You can't get it back. You know, then we say, oh no, we're seeing that brain has plasticity across the lifespan and, and things can change even into your sixties and seventies. But not everything, right? Right. That's that's so, correct. So what I mean, what are the limitations that some of these kids are gonna have? Like, are you gonna see some that right? I mean, you're one of your sons went to medical school. Um, but are you gonna see others that are gonna need lifelong assistance? Like what yeah. well, one of my kids I have, Marcello, who's what can we hope for? He's intellectually disabled. He had full-blown FAS, severe issues, medical complications. I'm his guardian for life, but I've learned, I've taught him how to be independent. He works, he collects money, balances money, cheapest guy you'll ever meet. He's learned to be very much, you know, in his zone. He knows what he can do, and he also knows what he can't do because he's a hit third grade level. So everybody's different, but what's most important, 
to realize we do have a critical window of what I call cognitive restructuring or redevelopment. Ira talks about this a little bit. I know Bruce Perry does a lot. Um, and I think even Bessel will talk about it. The critical windows where the brain is still able to be picking up and rejuvenating some new brain cells, and I'm not talking just by drugs, I think they're way overused, is that critical window of four to seven and then seven to nine. After 10 and 11, things start plateauing, and it's like any other organ. If you don't exercise it during those critical windows, you're not going to get a good return on your money. And so I tell a lot of people, so all that talk therapy that people want to get into, a lady called me today. She says, I adopted a kid a few years ago, and I have had him in therapy for a couple of years, and we're not going anywhere. I said, what's wrong with him? She says, well, he's got conduct problem and rad. I said, how do you know that? Well, because he acts that way. So we're losing window time. I told her straight up, I said, are you sure? And then she told me, well, I knew the mother was a heroin addict. I said, okay, you missed that one. So, you know, we're, we're, that critical window of cognitive reorganization, Karen, reorganization, reteaching. You know, it is like teaching a foreign language that you got to really do implosion. You got to flood them with that new language of emotions, but not, you know what? I tell all the people, I draw it on my board. They said, well, what about the behavior? What about, I said, we're not gonna deal with that. We're gonna go backwards in time and reconstruct what they don't know what to do. That's what people need to do. By 10, 12, 14, it gets 50, 60% more difficult because the brain is not producing cells at the same rapid rate. It's actually starting to plateau. By 17, 18, 19, it's steady state. You're not picking up more brain cells, except if you go to college and you exercise your brain. But a kid who's injured, there are what we're finding out on some of our studies on FAS and drug related, they're actually, they can decline if you don't keep the brain exercised and workability. And a lot of people just let it go to drugs and talk therapy. And what we're seeing, they go into early dementia in the in their late teens and early 20s where wow. they lose acquired skills. We wow. got brain studies to support that. Interesting. So it's important to keep the boat up and running. Language, learning, logic, listening, socialization, talk, not talk therapy, teaching therapy, homework assignments, act, activities, actual things that families block three does with block four as long as medically we're okay. And we use block two, the neuropsych stuff, to have the pathway for brain and psychological reorganization. If you put all those blocks together, you're going to have a – I write about the 80% rule. For a traumatized kid, if you can get up to 80% recovery, you've done well. Wow. So a um, couple final questions. One, so you talk about fluff. You don't like fluff. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you obviously know me for a long time. A fluff is that, you know, let's just love them. Let me be patient. Like I got yelled at when I was in England lecturing because the Royal Academy of Psychologists, they're very stoic in England, in the UK, very stoic, totally against all this attachment therapy, anything directive. And I've done a lot of shows. So fluff therapy, my definition is, well, let's just be patient. Let's do a sticker chart. Let's give them, you know, let's reward them for what they do right. And let's ignore them or let's lock them in the room or let's ignore the behavior or let's just try to talk about I'm really sorry you killed your pet dog. Maybe you were really upset. You know, that kind of nonsense. That just doesn't fly in the face of reality, not only with me as a professional and a parent, but also with the kids. The kid's going to say, that's an opening to continue to do anything you want because there's no boundaries. Safety so has talking, to be established. So you're talking um, 
about maybe what people would think is traditional talk therapy right, and some, right. even some forms of CBT and yeah, try like to that. talk them out of what they're doing. So then, and safety has to come first. Um, safety without faith, without block three, without safety, you got nothing. That's you know, always I, been my, my structure. I always tell parents, you can't, work on psychological safety when there's not physical safety absolutely and i recommend being a, a master instructor and i recommend handle with care training these people understand my population they're out of new york handle with care training is outstanding it teaches how to deal with physical violence verbal violence non-compliance or a kid who's just kind of totally dysregulated in uh, without that kind of safety box you can't go anywhere and a lot of us now some kids fortunately they're a little bit more workable but the gen, my population and i think the general older traumatized population you were you know how chatty these kids are not yeah. safe they're not well, safe right and i think a lot of therapists are telling parents okay if they get out of control call the police, police. And i'm not that that that's the worst intervention right. That you know is what? not working. That's not working. Number one, by the time the cops get there, the kid's fine. Number two, it's an escape. Number three, the policemen say, what's going on in the home? It opens up the CPS. But nothing gets accomplished. The parents don't. They, they become uh, inadequate in the child's eyes as being yeah. unable to keep the yeah. child sick. Yes, that is what I think. Um, all of those things happen. I think that final one is the biggest one that... I don't have parents that can help me manage myself. Like this is just a, you know, this is scary. Like they can't control me or help me manage myself. So. Well, and, and the big, the next step is Karen, that in the kid's mind, even though they don't have the words, they can't do, if they can't manage me, how the hell are they going to deal with my trauma mm -hmm. and all the things I haven't been able to organize or relate or express or deal with physical sex, emotional abuse. What do they need more than anything? Safety with compassion, safety with firmness, safety with limits, so the kid can reorganize and know this person's stronger than my disability and my damage. And you right. know, that's a critical factor that I've been criticized for as being so, I'm never aggressive, but you're, you're just so much into safety and safety management, and I don't think you should lay a hand on a kid who's been traumatized. I said, I'm not talking about laying a hand, I'm talking about keeping them safe so they don't hurt me or you or anybody or the dog or the cat or themselves. Because the risk of suicide is humongous for these traumatized kids who are not safe. I think that, um, I don't have the answer. I think this is a very big problem and I've seen it since starting to do more in-home work, the level of violence that goes on because the families aren't telling people this. They're very ashamed. Yes. You yes. don't know it until you get in there. And I don't have the answer because most places, you know, foster parents are told don't put hands on. You know, I don't know, no hands on, you can't even restrain well, them. And, and, and I, under, I do understand concern about that, and I do understand that children have died in restraint. Yep. But, but so then, but then that's one that we start with well, let's call the police, let's, or let's put them in a psyche unit a couple days. And drug them to oblivion. That's not a good solution either. So I feel like with this level of violence, we're at a place in the field that we're not really having a clear, good strategy. Well, you know what? I, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. Or they use chemical restraints, which is the big well, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but you know what? I urge people, 
to take a look at a couple things to make them feel better. Because a lot of parents, in fairness to them, and foster parents, they don't know what the hell to do. And they're told often the wrong advice or social services, well, you can't restrain them even if they hit you, call the police. That's insane, in my professional opinion. I recommend people, and I'm real picky, and I have no financial interest in them. My colleagues at handlewithcare.com in New York will come out and do training for you, individual, small group, large group, institutional care. Most hospitals have some, but Karen, I've been around the block. It ain't great. You know, you have to do it the right way. I learned with, with working my population, and I worked with some very violent ones for my many years. If you don't resolve the crisis that's going on in front of you within 30 seconds, you've lost a child to a quagmire of more problems, meaning the kid knows it's going to continue because they're back in an unsafe environment. What I like about Handle with Care, it's not just talking, it's action-oriented, it's safe, it's approved. You can go from beginner to intermediate to advanced to instructor level. And I'm an instructor, but you know what? I'm, and I give it away. I do it for free at places that people ask. You get 10 people together, I've done it. I did it in Colorado for four years in a row, twice a year for nothing. I got a lot of connections there and they know me well. They're cheap, they're inexpensive, but they're the best out there. And at least a starting point, and they give you a card that you can register then with the Department of Social Services and Child Protection that I am an authorized, approved, well-trained manager for abuse and neglect, and the courts acknowledge it as an appropriate intervention, at least a starting point for the rest of your therapy because yeah, that's, it's a good yeah, thing. That's good, and, and like you said, they're going to have to check if they're if they're fostering they're gonna have to check with their agency and things and they got to check to make sure it's okay but most agencies don't know about this i'm shocked how many don't know about it or don't acknowledge or don't allow it but i think we need to be more progressive in our lobbying for better care for kids and i look at this as and dave ziegler out in jasper mountain who runs jasper mountain in eugene oregon he says safety management and proper safety holding, not holding therapy, but safety holding is an integral part of trauma therapy because it keeps the kids safe without the in, in, inappropriate sexual contact. And, 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 and you're right. It's controversial. You know, it's controversial. Are, parents are going to have to decide because there's, there's going to be people out there that fully believe in no restraint facilities, don't think it should ever be used no yeah. matter what. So I think, yeah. you know, parents yeah. are this is something that the field split on. So and listen, I, I've been a lightning rod on that one too, because, you know, I tell people until they, you know, the ones who hear or read about me, say, read nonsense, you know, it's all kinds of nonsense on the internet about, you know, the church of Scientology, atheists and people who don't believe in any of that stuff. But I, once they meet me, I show them what to do. And they say, wow, this is very beneficial to the kid. And for me, I feel more empowered to keep them safe. I said, yeah, now go ahead and do the training. So you're right. Our field needs to come together. And I think like an attachment trauma network, I think we should have a presentation on that. Have them come out and do that for people or have small group. I think it could be incredible. And foster care, like when I did the state conference in Indiana, I told them and half the group was in shock. What do you mean? They've already been beaten. I said, who's talking about beating them? We're talking about safety which is very mm -hmm. different. So that's another yeah. conversation. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so before we wrap up, where can people find resources? Some of the things you've mentioned, um, any books or training? I know you have well, video I, I, I tell you, I got a ton of stuff and people are willing. I give away all my articles, papers. I get materials, training. At, at, uh, they can call, email me at drfederici at AOL. You know my email. Mm -hmm. And also, too, I urge people to read all the books by Dr. David Ziegler, Z-I-E. 
G-L-E-R. Uh, raising children refused to raise. Achieving success with impossible children, overcoming developmental trauma. I got tons of article on traumatic autism. I give away on institutional autism or detoxification, uh, neuropsychology of bonding. Charlie Zena's books are outstanding about mm -hmm. developmental trauma. Yeah. Uh, I'm working on that. I urge people uh, to look at to sign up for the Attachment Trauma Network. I think the material is very progressive and innovative, and it's hands-on as opposed to fluff therapy, which I'll probably get some nasty calls about that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? you got to be straight because you know what? The kids don't have time for fluff. They need yeah. work. And right. so maybe our next time we could talk about specific interventions. I could bring some materials and training, and people are going to say, wow. This is not hard to do. Right, right. Yeah. And I'll leave you on this note. After I work with families, my biggest joke of uh, insult that the kids tell me after they're doing better, they look at me, they say, you don't look that smart. <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh when they're doing better because that's our joke. You're really doing better. And I say, well, I did it. I, they said, you don't look that smart. <laughs> you know what? One of, my, one of my books coming out is called Escape from Despair Through the Eyes of the Child. It's how the kids see you. That's yeah. all that matters. They got to see you safe, smart, and bigger than the trauma. So yeah. we'll leave it at that. And maybe all right. next time. Okay? Well, always good to talk. Thank you it's so much. It's always great to be time. with you. Okay, next time. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.